Welcome back to part two of the Attitude with Arnie Arneson and producers Dave Scott and Stephanie Collins. You know the drill. We're recording on Wednesday morning. For the Attitude, our part two is also going to be a separate podcast. And you're going to hear this podcast separately once a month. And why? Because today is the first day of race class. It's a conversation, yeah, maybe even a course, found on the radio dial, streaming live at WNHNFM.org and distributed through the Pacifica Network and, of course, available by podcast. It is a place where we carve out a space once a month where listeners can approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. And I thought, you know, if we're going to be teaching this class once a month, then I need to do something to sort of make it relevant to what's happening during that month. And since this is January, I grabbed the headlines from the last few weeks that inspire, frankly, demand the teaching of race classes. So here are just a couple of the headlines before I introduce our instructor. GOP sees huge red wave potential by targeting critical race theory. Republicans and state legislatures across the country are gearing up to push through dozens of anti-critical race theory bills this year. How about this one? U.S. High Court to hear challenge to race-based college admissions. Challenges brought by a conservative legal activist could bring an end to affirmative action programs at Harvard and UNC. Or Florida school district cancels professors civil rights lecture over critical race theory concerns. The one that made me really gag. Florida advances bill that would ban making white people feel bad about racism. And no, that's not a joke. The bill would ban public schools and private businesses from inflicting discomfort on white people during lessons or training about discrimination or fear. Another one, new conservative target. This is frightening. Race as factor in COVID treatment. In Mississippi, black Mississippi senators walk out in protest over critical race theory ban. How about in Georgia? Georgia lawmakers try to identify critical race theory in schools. In fact, in Virginia, the new Republican governor who banned critical race theory in schools is launching a tip line for parents to report their kids' teachers. And then perhaps the last one, Iowa GOP lawmakers want state control and sign off of all schools' social studies lesson plans. That folks is just a couple of the headlines that showed up in the last two weeks. And I thought, oh my God, what are we gonna do? So what we're doing is race class. Race class is being taught by Boston University law professor, Jonathan Feigold. He is an expert in critical race theory. And when I asked him for his bio, here's what he wrote. He often asks his students why civil rights laws are better at reproducing racial inequality than remedying it. So I guess our first question is, why are we here? 
I think the headlines dictate why we are here, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arnie. Uh, it's a thrill to be here. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, uh, among many other ways that I could just initially respond, it's a good thing that um, we're going to have uh, 12 of these conversations because there's uh, a, lot that, a lot that we need to talk about. But, but I think you're right to just start by asking, why are we here? And I think, so, in a sense, the, the top answer is we're in this rather incredible moment in which just talking about race or racism is under attack. Like teachers have been fired. Matthew Hahn is a great example of roughly a year ago for trying to engage his uh, students in, uh, I believe, Eastern Tennessee in an 11th grade class about race and concepts like racism and white privilege. Uh, he was uh, terminated in what was like pretty clearly politically uh, motivated. And so one of the reasons why we're here is just, just the conversations that we're trying to have legislatures across the country are trying to make illegal. There's actually, for me, a sort of a, a different sort of impetus or desire to be here. And it's not just that there's just this onslaught of attacks on just talking about racism itself, but that my sense is the mainstream media, and I don't mean to paint with an overly broad brush, but the media and, and a lot of the sort of national conversation seems just lost, just sort of out at sea, just unable to navigate um, and respond to uh, this moment. And in a sense, that makes sense because we are experiencing this, co this collective this whiplash where a year and a half ago, the summer of 2020, global uprisings for racial justice. And we saw, and I think many people earnestly felt that this could be a moment of transformative potential and where we really can in earnest and sort of humble and challenging ways try to reckon with the history that uh, continues to shape so many dimensions of American life. But then uh, on cue, it's, we've seen a backlash, racial backlash and retrenchment that I think it's fair to say is unprecedented in its scope since Reconstruction. And there's this reality where race is embedded in everything that's going on. And yet we don't even have the vocabulary to name it and to describe it and to help our see ourselves through it. Let me just start by just reading a little bit from a, a quote that Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who is um, one of the sort of founders of critical race theory in an interview with the Washington Post recently, because I think this actually sums up, at least for me, why the conversations that I hope you and I um, continue to have, why they're so important. So she was just remarking how, how in that summer in 2020, you were beginning to see a uh, sort of mainstreaming of words like structural racism, intersectionality, uh, hierarchies of oppression. Like people were saying these words and they were doing so earnestly. But, and, and now I'm quoting, with no real literacy beyond that, with no capacity to actually say, okay, tell us what that means, what needs to be done. Tell us what the policies are that allow us to unravel the institutional forms of inequality that you're now talking about. And if you don't have the ability to do it, that is to actually understand and unpack and distill a term that is both accessible, but also like hard to um, engage like structural racism, uh, you quote unquote picked a fight with a giant and you don't have ammunition. And so part of the goal is to better equip everyone who's just interested in navigating this moment with basically the sense of fundamental racial literacy. Um, and the last thing that I'll say, and then I just, 
I'll turn it back to you in case you want to sort of add anything um, at this outset. But a question that I think is important for everyone to ask is, where does our racial education happen? Like, I think we generally get that this thing called race is embedded throughout society and shapes so much of our like individual to just so, um, societal um, interactions. But where is it that we actually learn about it? Rarely in school, um, because it's certainly not something that's prioritized or seen as sort of an academic intellectual endeavor aside from maybe some sort of niche uh, discipline. Um, and for many of us, it doesn't happen at home in part because we've never had to talk about it. And so part of the question is like, where is it happening? And if it's not, like what are the spaces that we can create so some sort of racial education uh, can happen? You talked about, we use these words, but we don't really even understand what they mean. And I think that's absolutely true. So that's the perfect opportunity for the other side to come in because we're using words without a sense of history, a knowledge of meaning, knowing you know where they where they came from and why they're relevant at this moment, means that you can then work on our ignorance. You can actually mine that ignorance and then turn it into fear and anxiety because you're not even sure what you're defending. Because as you point out, where do we learn about race? I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you what I learned about race. I think I was seven and I read Harriet Tubman's book. Okay, how is my, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a white school. I'm a white woman. I raised my kids in white New Hampshire. What do I know about race? You know, I think I told you before, my experience on the floor of the New Hampshire legislature, which was 98.999% white, was when we offered Martin Luther King's birthday as a holiday in New Hampshire, I spoke on the floor and was shocked when out of 400 people, we only got 60 votes. So my knowledge of race was, oh, they don't like people of color in New Hampshire. You know, that was my reaction. And yet I'm just trying to figure out at this moment when we're seeing all this pushback, it's not only that they seem to be so successful because they control so many state legislatures in the country, but we are gonna be so unsuccessful unless we become more sophisticated in what the language is, in what the terms mean, in what the history is. Because the only way that we can be courageous is with knowledge. Because right now I don't feel as courageous as I wanna be because I don't necessarily have the history under my belt, Jonathan. Yes, so I agree with all that. And you also, I think, just surface an important question, uh, which is like in a conversation that's being had, like in a sense, there are more people part of this conversation. Both of us are hoping to engage uh, through social media and other platforms. But right now it's just you and me over Zoom and like we're both white. Uh, and like there's some intergenerational diversity here, which is nice, but um, I think it is worth to just ask the question of like, can we pull this off? Like, can the two of us here like have this conversation in a productive um, and generative way? And I think like the short answer is we have to be able to, because if there's, if, if like we have to, like multiracial democracy is teetering. If there's something that like, it like inherently prohibits two people, regardless of race, to have just sophisticated, challenging, sort of curious, humble, like stumbling through conversations about race, then um, uh, we're all lost. And that's not to say that um, there aren't constraints or limitations to what we can talk about. Neither of us have experience racism in a sort of personal, direct sort of way. I, I certainly have experienced it with anti-Semitism, which is related in all sorts of respects, but like, 
And even if we did, you know, we would want to avoid any sort of impulse to essentialize what a particular group's experience um, is. And so we're not going to do that and we're not going to go there. But, you, you know, it's, it's a metaphor. I'm going to toss out a bunch of sort of a metaphors and analogies, but just to think about sort of how we might be able to at least sort of pull this off. If you want to learn about cancer, you got to talk with people who've experienced having cancer. But you've also got to talk with oncologists, even if they can't tell you what it is like to have had cancer, because they've dedicated, you know, years, decades to studying what causes this phenomenon and studying how to treat this phenomenon. Uh, and so, so again, oncologists, you know, like, like make them show you their work, like um, don't necessarily take their word for granted. They have all sorts of blind spots, but the more that we can see race and racism as complex social phenomena that we need a broad literacy, which comes from reading and learning and listening and talking in order to understand, then I think that can at least bring us closer to a place of recognizing that this is a conversation that we all need to be a part of it. And everyone can be in a productive way, but you know, it, it takes work. You don't become an oncologist overnight just because you realize, oh yeah, cancer is real. Yeah. It doesn't make you an oncologist. Okay. So one of the things that you told me was think of critical race theory as math. And you said critical race theory is calculus. Well, I don't know about you, but I didn't study calculus in first grade and sixth grade and eighth grade. I was actually in an advanced math class. So I actually got to it maybe in 11th or 12th. So I was kind of lucky, you know, but most people, you know, they may not even get it till college. So if we think of critical race theory as calculus, I guess what we need to do over the course of the next 12 months is start with algebra, geometry, basic arithmetic, and all those other things. Where do you begin, Jonathan? Because as we point out, where did we learn about race? We didn't. I mean, let's be honest, we didn't. So what we learn, we learn either through experience of which some of us have limited experience. We learn because we're curious. So some of us have pursued it on our own. We've learned because we've seen pushback. I mean, I, I'm watching what's happening in schools now all over the, across the country, whether they're demanding the banning of books and whether they're, they're talking about, oh, you know, I want to review that social studies program. And if you mention race, you know, you're making me uncomfortable. And I kept thinking, I know what they're going for. They want to make a return to Plessy versus Ferguson. What they're really saying is I want separate but equal. I mean, I feel like that's what we mean. But a lot of people go, what is Plessy versus Ferguson? Where were we in the past and how have we evolved? And why do I feel like we're going back to the past? In part, because who's taught us the basic arithmetic of race? And even how do you conduct that conversation? So, so I think all that's right. And um, for anyone who happens to be listening right now, uh, this sort of first segment, this first episode, whatever you want to call it, part of it is just like the two of us explaining why we're here and where we're heading. We will get into a specific conversation. So I think in the other episodes, we're just gonna be um, jumping in, but I just wanna go back to that analogy for a second. In part because like, you know, like I think analogies are really helpful metaphors to just help us see the world in front of us. And so if you're someone like me uh, and you think that like, it is a central organizing force in American society. And like, there's no reason that it wouldn't be, like it actually makes total sense if you read any history. And you think of, so yeah, again, race is math. If that's the comparison, we don't need everyone to be a mathematician, but you do need mathematical literacy. And we promote that by every single year in school. Like math is a, is a course that is taught. It is subject and you're learning iteratively 
um, as you go. Obviously, that's not happening with respect to race. And so part of race class, part of what we're doing here is to build out that racial literacy that ideally we would have, but we're not getting. And the other piece of it is like, just to see what CRT looks like. A lot of people in the past year have been exposed to this term critical race theory and CRT in this whirlwind debate. And I think there's probably a lot of just genuine curiosity. Like, what is this thing? What are people getting so worked up about? So I have, I don't know, 15 years or so studying this thing called CRT. I continue to think of myself as an aspiring critical race theorist. I don't even think of myself as a critical race theorist. But I think that these conversations we have are an opportunity to see this thing in action. And like one iteration of it, obviously the way that I sort of engage is not going to be the same as, as anyone else. A friend of mine did send me an email. And she said, but we were told, Arnie, that we weren't, we never studied race. What we were told is that we were supposed to be race blind, that we weren't supposed to notice race, that we were supposed to look at merit, that we were supposed to look at ability, that we were supposed to look at all these other factors, but that the idea of acknowledging or commenting on or seeing race was perceived as a negative. So I guess when we ask the question, how do we study race? How do we wed those two concepts together? The idea that you're not supposed to see race, you're not supposed to see ethnicity, you're not supposed to see faith, you're supposed to see ability and opportunity and merit and all these other things that are part of the individual, but those other outside trappings or religious trappings, those are things that we're not supposed to sort of factor in when we study or evaluate. Now, that sounds lovely. It also sounds a little bit naive. How do I study race at the same time recognizing that everyone is striving to be looked at and be, being given the equity and the equality that they deserve? So really good questions. And I appreciate that someone feels comfortable enough to reach out to you and just ask and say, hey, I was taught this. It seems incommensurate with like everything that I feel that I experience. How do we reconcile this? And I'm going to have to just jump into uh, this like focus of the substantive topic for today, because I know we're limited on time. But the last thing I'll say, just to sort of preview where we're headed, in each of these short, limited segments, which should certainly be one of many things folks are listening to and reading to sort of better understand this thing we call race, we're going to start from the presumption, which I think is a fair presumption, that race matters. We know race matters. But the question is, what does that mean? And so this is where like, we actually have to get into stuff like this notion that race is a social construction, like this term of like a structural racism, concepts like white privilege, war, just phrases like affirmative action. So that's all stuff we're going to get into just to add texture to the insight that race matters, which is so simple, but so deep. And we're going to try to get a little bit uh, deeper. When they sent me that email, I kept thinking about something that my children would say to me over and over again, which is, do you see me? Now, my children are obviously white, but they meant that the, the complexity of who they were, do you see me? And race and ethnicity and faith and education and financial security, those are all part of seeing you. You know, I can't see you and then not see you. And I think that's part of the reason why I want to be able to say race matters, but I want people to understand that it does matter both in the collective and in the individual, and that we're not saying 
you know, you have to somehow run away from that, that, that term, but I'm trying to figure out how do we embrace it in a way that provides the Velcro for a society and doesn't divide us, Jonathan. That's what I'm seeing. I mean, they're working the divide really well, which is why I started with all those headlines. All those headlines are about figuring out ways to separate us, not figuring out ways to find out what is our common humanity or what is it that we all need. But yet, even if we all need certain things, there are things that are different about us. And how do we embrace the difference without making it sort of a way to marginalize us? Uh, we've got, I think, about five more minutes. So, so let me uh, just riff. Uh, for a minute, in part to begin to sort of unpack what we might mean uh, when we say something like race matters. And we're not saying that race proves everything or that race is everything, but it's a more modest point that it matters. And um, it's important that we understand what that means. And so for today, and in part, like you had all those great headlines, I want to talk about framing and really how the mainstream media, how the public has framed the broad, quote unquote, sort of war on CRT. Four questions um, that we're going to at least begin to, to get to. And we're certainly not going to get um, super deep in the limited time we have. Like, how is this controversy framed? One. Two, why is this the frame? Three, why does that matter? Uh, and then four, how is race relevant? Like, why is a question about framing a question about race? And for anyone who wants to do a deeper dive into framing, I would just highly recommend Nat Kendall Taylor Shop Frameworks Institute. Google it, like really good content there. When we use the term framing, we can mean different things, but for right now, what I really mean is, what is the type or category of problem that we are dealing with? And so the frame is, so it's what we, the problem that we've identified or the category we've identified. So an example, um, to make it a little bit more concrete, across the world, there's migration across international boundaries. And you could frame the in two different ways, right? like many ways, but there's at least two. One is the problem, quote unquote, is an immigration crisis. But it could, the alternative frame is it's a global health or welfare crisis. Those are two competing frames. Uh, and there's reasons why some people might prefer one over the other. Generally, why might the framing matter? Because it shapes what we see and what we don't say. Uh, it shapes who we identify as the hero or victim on the one hand and the villain or perpetrator on the other. And it shapes what we see as the underlying problem and then the solution. Now, every good lawyer knows that often the fight is over the frame. Because once you, like, if you have the frame, then like, I don't know, it's nine tenths of the, of the battle. Our war on CRT, or feel free to jump in, Arnie, if you were going to. No, 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 no. I, 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 I love the idea of the framing because I, I go back to what DeSantis wants to do, which is, you know, he wants to make sure that there's no discomfort for white people about racism. So his frame is discomfort. OK. And, and as we're getting to the end of this segment, I want to know what's the opposite frame of discomfort? I mean, it's, I mean, in a way, I almost think that they're brilliant at framing things. And I'm thinking we're not so brilliant at framing it on the other side. So I almost want to get a list of how they frame the issue and then say, so what is the opposite of that frame? How do I take that frame back and own it and explain it? And so and I'm just going to pick on the mainstream media. I'm happy doing that. I don't need to even make it a left right thing. So how's the mainstream media framing this? You know, um, Curriculum controversy, 
how to best teach about race, parental rights, referendum on CRT. Like those I think are the prevailing frames. What have we not seen? It's like with like minor exception, we have not seen the war on CRT framed as a near unprecedented assault on free speech. Right. We have like, we are not collectively experiencing what's happening through the lens of free speech. Now, there's a couple um, people, there's voices out there that are critiquing this. Um, so folks like Jeff Sachs at PEN America, Je Judd Legum at Popular Information. Um, and their response is that like, the failure for the mainstream media to frame this current controversy through a free speech lens um, is hypocritical and descriptively inaccurate. Why is it hypocritical? Well, because for the past, I don't know, five or 10 years, the media has been bent out of shape over quote unquote cancel culture. Like the media knows how to use a free speech frame. Um, and it has used one when talking about debates over how sort of racist speech is engaged on college campuses. So you've got that like hypocrisy point. And then like the other point, it's like descriptively, like when are you gonna have a more appropriate time for a free speech claim or free speech frame? You have state elected officials banning books, trying to ban words, firing teachers. You have tip lines. And so I guess we're out of time. I don't really know if that means I can keep going. No, no, no. But, but all right. This is just the first class. This is the first conversation on race class. Obviously, it tells you uh, 12 sessions aren't going to be enough. But it's an opportunity for people to send questions in, post on my Facebook page, ask anything. But more importantly, we have to have this conversation now. And frankly, let's give the media the words they're not using. Let's give them the frame they're not using. But we need to figure out that frame. And this is one place where we can begin to do that. Thank you for listening to the first installment of Race Class with Professor Jonathan Feingold of Boston University Law School and Arnie Arneson of The Attitude. There'll be 11 more sessions, a lot more to learn. So make sure you tune in. All you folks that you own my life You never made me sacrifice there on my trail Standing at the crossroads of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side Got my prize Which I'll sell all that is mine Think money rules and all else fails Go sell your soul, keep your shell I'm trying to protect what I keep inside All the reasons why I live my life
to tell you what you want, try to tell you what you need. What is at your back? 